You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 2. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 1, kind of set the stage for uh, what we're going to be talking about uh, throughout the book of Romans. When we looked at the major theme of the book, it's found in Romans 1, 16 through 17, which hopefully you were able to memorize last week. That theme is that God's righteousness is revealed in Christ, and it's acquired by faith. So there's a righteousness that's needed if we're going to stand before God, and the only way to receive that righteousness is through faith in Christ. And we're going to see again as we work through Romans 1, 2, and 3 that we cannot acquire that righteousness through any effort of our own, whether that's uh, external good works, whether that's through some type of ceremony, whether that's through being born into the right family, that none of those things enable us to get the righteousness that we so desperately need to stand before God. Now, we've defined some important terms and um, want to draw your attention back to those. Uh, the gospel, so anytime we're talking about the gospel, uh, specifically in Romans, we're talking about God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ by faith for his glory forever. You can simplify that with God, man, sin, Christ response. So it's God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ by faith for his glory forever. We talk about justification or being justified before God. That means to be declared righteous. Righteousness is is right standing or being right before God. So justification is being declared right before God. Uh, whatever that looks like, and we're going to talk more about what that actually looks like, but what that looks like um, is being right in the presence of God. Justification, to be declared right or to be shown right in the presence of God. And we're going to see that nobody can be shown right before God. Instead, it necessitates God declaring us right, even though we're not right. Um, and it's only through Christ that that can take place. Uh, we looked at God's wrath Uh, being revealed in chapter 1. It continues to be revealed in chapter 2. Wrath is God's proper response to man's sin. God's wrath is appropriate. It's proper because of general revelation. General revelation is God revealing himself to everybody at all times and all places. It's, It's God's revelation through nature that's available to everybody. Since Adam and Eve were created to today, Everybody has the same general revelation. We can look around at creation. We can look around at nature. We can see God's existence. Romans 1 says his eternal power, his divine nature have been evident since God created the earth. And it leaves man without excuse. But as we come into Romans chapter 2, we also see that God has revealed himself specially to certain people at definite times and places. Meaning that God intervened in history And revealed things about himself that we couldn't know through nature. And he did that to specific people. Sometimes groups of people, sometimes individuals. There was a lot of special revelation that happened at Mount Sinai. As the nation of Israel was gathered at the foot of the mountain, God's revealing himself through thunder and lightning and smoke. And he's bringing his law to to physical tablets where they could be read. There's special revelation that comes through uh, announcements by angels. Mary received special revelation um, that that she would bear the Messiah. So those are are incidences where God steps into um, the timeline of history, reveals special things. That also gives us no excuse. 
it makes us guilty because we do have special revelation. But we're also guilty because we have general revelation. So we looked last week at Romans chapter 1. We said that from an outline standpoint, Romans 1, 2, uh, and parts of 3 are all about condemnation, God's wrath. Chapter 1, God's wrath is being revealed against immoral people. These are the people that we would describe as really sinful people. Like people that just live gross, sinful, inappropriate, obviously rebellious lives before God. These are the people that we would, unfortunately, a lot of times stand in judgment of. We would say, well, that person definitely deserves God's wrath. They're, they're, they're wicked. They're evil. Obviously, um, God should be angry at them. And we saw reasons why God's wrath is appropriate against those people. They, they have the opportunity to know God. But they reject that knowledge of God. They suppress that truth. Um, They fail to worship God appropriately. And because of uh, failing to worship God, it leads to a lifestyle of sin. We said that when our worship is wrong, our lifestyle is wrong. When we're not worshiping God rightly, it causes us to think wrongly about everything. Uh, Specifically, we saw in Romans chapter 1, it causes us to think wrongly about sex. We have, we have a wrong perspective, an unnatural perspective that leads to homosexuality, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. That that's the type of moral degradation that takes place. When worship is wrong, lifestyle becomes extremely wrong very quickly because God gives people over to those sinful desires. And we saw at the very end of chapter 1 where Paul says, these people who live these type of lifestyles, they practice sinful things, and they're, they're approving of others that practice the same thing as well. This is somebody who, who lives a sexually immoral lifestyle and then looks at the homosexual and says, hey, that's their choice. That's their right. That's how they were created. That's how they're supposed to live. That's who they are. You can't judge them. It's somebody who's living sexually immoral and then looks at others and says, hey, they, they have the right to do so as well. So they don't judge other people. They approve other people. But Romans chapter 1 there at the end, it also says they know that what they're doing is wrong. They know what other people are doing is wrong, but they approve of it. They approve of themselves living that way. They approve of others living that way. And so then chapter 1 closes with the question really kind of lingering there, well, what about good people, right? So you you read through all that, and the the problem is is that there's a lot of lost people that would read chapter 1 and say, yeah, like, if people are doing that kind of stuff, they definitely deserve God's wrath. They're definitely guilty. Look at the gross sins that we're talking about. And then it leaves the question, well, what about those people that, that are good, that genuinely live good lives, that, that take care of other people, that seem concerned about other people? Um, what, what happens to them? How, what, what is their standing like before God? So as we come into Romans chapter 2, we continue to look at condemnation. Specifically, God's wrath being revealed against the moral and the religious. The moral person, the religious person. Paul shows that everyone is equal in their sin. And specifically, religious people, he talks about Jewish people, God's chosen race, God's chosen nation. But we're going to see that there's some correlation between the arguments that the Jewish person would use in comparison to the person who grew up in a Christian home. But there's the tendency for the same type of, type of arguments to be used. So I don't just label it the Jewish person that gets God's wrath. It's the religious person for us today. It's the person who grows up with the covenant family. You know, we've talked a lot through covenant theology that 
in, in a lot of senses, the church has assumed uh, a lot of the role of Israel in the New Testament. And so people that are born into the church, born into Christian families, a lot of times fall prey to these same arguments. I'm good before God because of these reasons. And we'll see those when we get towards the end of chapter 2. So the goal of chapter 2 to show that the moral person and the religious person, person are both just as guilty as the immoral person. Now, there's some things that stand out real quickly to me as I was studying through chapter 2. Uh, about how God judges, how God judges. And so I want to highlight to you, um, and I didn't number these, but there's a, there's a good many of them, things that we know about how God judges just from Romans chapter 2. Again, this is special revelation. This is stuff that we wouldn't know just by looking at nature. This is stuff that God has revealed to us in chapter 2 that specifies to us how he brings judgment on this earth. Uh, the grounds of his judgment is works. He judges based on how we live our life. That's, that's the grounds for his judgment. He judges us based on how we live. And the rule that he uses is how much knowledge did we have about how we should live. Okay, so how well did you live according to what you knew? That's how God judges. How well did you live according to what you knew? So we're going to see that there's some variance in God's wrath. There's some variance in how judgmental God is towards people. He's far more wrathful towards those that have special revelation versus those that just have general revelation. There's some ev- there's some areas in scripture that allude to hell being more serious for some than others based on how much knowledge they had. And that seems appropriate, that seems right, that seems just. And God takes into account how much knowledge somebody had. So we're going to see that God's rule and his standards of judgment focus on works and the knowledge that we had about how to live. Now here's some bullet points for you about his judgment. First of all, his judgment is just. It's right. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So when God comes back one day, when Jesus comes back to judge, his judgment will be just. It will be right. Psalm verse, uh, Psalm chapter 9, verse 4. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. But the Lord sits enthroned forever, verse 7, and he has established his throne for justice He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. God's judgment is just. It's right. Secondly, his judgment is patient. God's judgment is patient. Verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We know that God... Uh, initially brought evidence or brought knowledge of the flood and then gave 120 years before the flood actually came. And Moses preached righteousness to those uh, that would listen. Unfortunately, it was his family that entered the ark. Everyone else took the delay. For 120 years, you've been talking about a flood. It's not going to come. Second Peter draws our attention back to that. And people today that say, Jesus isn't coming back. It's been too long. It's been 2,000 years since he was here. And we mistake his patience for approval. God is very patient in his judgment. He delays his judgment, giving opportunity for repentance. Thirdly, his judgment is certain. 
His judgment is certain. Verse 5. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on that day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So it's not that God is forgetting about our sin. It's that we're storing up wrath and it will all be poured out on a specific day, a certain day, the day that Jesus returns. And we know that he'll return. It was made evident to us by his resurrection, Paul tells us. Fourth, his judgment is based on performance. His judgment is based on performance. Verse six, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. He's communicating to us a judgment that is based on our works. Now, this isn't just unique to Paul. This is also taught in other passages of Scripture, Matthew sixteen twenty-seven. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Luke 18.21 And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. Uh, when Jesus heard this, he said, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. Now in context, the man has just said, I know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. The rich man says, I've done all those things. I've done all those things. Jesus says, do one more thing and you'll, you'll have eternal life. That, that works-based mentality, they're evident in some of Jesus' teaching. John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And then in Revelation 20. Verses 12 through 13. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, don't miss the importance of this in Romans chapter 2. This does not conflict with what we know about salvation. We know that, that none of us can be good enough to be saved. But we cannot miss that God's standard for eternal life is based on works. It's based on works. He is going to judge by works. He's going to judge the dead. By those that have done good, they get eternal life. Those that have done evil, they get wrath and fury. So how does that mesh with what we know about works and how, how we can't earn our salvation? What Paul is doing here, because again, this is about condemnation, not about salvation. Salvation is by faith. Judgment is by works. And what Paul is doing here is he's presenting a scenario that's utterly impossible. A scenario that cannot happen. And he'll, he'll, he'll show us that in Romans chapter 3. It's a scenario that's impossible. He says, verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Those to who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, 
He'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. What he's showing us here in Romans 1, 2, and 3 is that nobody falls into that first category. Nobody seeks for glory and honor and immortality. Nobody's getting eternal life based on their works. But theoretically, if somebody could live this way, if somebody could do good, then they would inherit eternal life. But unfortunately, he's showing us that all of mankind falls into the second category. Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. He hasn't described to us what Romans 1, 16 and 17 tells us, that the righteousness of God is revealed through Christ by faith. He hasn't gone into that yet. He'll go into it in Romans 3. What he's showing us here is that God has a standard that you have to be good to get into heaven. And he's showing us that nobody's good. But it doesn't change the standard. You have to be good to get to heaven. And yet nobody goes to heaven because they're good. Because nobody's good. He's showing us why Christ and the righteousness of Christ is so necessary. Because only Christ is good. Only Christ is able to get into heaven because of good works. He comes and lives perfectly for 33 years. It's that righteousness that we need. It's Christ who can stand before his father and be found justified because he's shown to be right. We have to be declared righteous. We have to be declared righteous based on the work of Jesus. So God's judgment is based on performance. We can't miss that. God will judge people based on how they lived their life. And we'll all be found guilty based on how we lived our life. Some of us more guilty than others because we've had more knowledge about how we're supposed to live. It's Jesus who's lived perfectly. It's Jesus, his perfect life that we so desperately need for our salvation. And Paul is trying to build that argument. So he draws our attention to the fact that, hey, you're going to be judged by your works. Will any of your works stand up on the day of judgment? And he's showing us that no, no, no. Whether you're the immoral guy, whether you're the good person, moral man, Whether you're the religious person, your good works will fall short of God's glory. Next, his judgment is wrathful. Verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That word fury has the idea of breathing heavily with anger. So we talk about God being wrathful, not in the sense that he loses his temper like some of the Greek gods used to do. But there is an element of anger there that's not just calm. There's a wrathful, vengeful fury that comes from God towards wickedness and towards sin. We saw that highlighted in 2 Thessalonians when Jesus returns. He is going to bring wrath on those that have been rebellious towards him. He's angry towards sin. His judgment is impartial. Verse 11. For God shows no partiality. The Jew and the Greek are under God's wrath. The moral man and the immoral man are under God's wrath. He's impartial. Next, his judgment is fair. His judgment's fair. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What that means is is that God judges by what was available to an individual. The more knowledge that an individual has, the more accountability there is to be obedient. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. 
For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The author of Hebrews says, when you know about Jesus and you still reject the plan of salvation, how much greater is your punishment than the person who never heard of Christ and the plan of salvation? They'll still be judged. They'll be judged by general revelation. They knew about God. They didn't worship God. But their knowledge is not as great as the Jewish individual who grew up in the Old Testament, grew up under God's law, was in covenant relationship with Yahweh, and rejected, rejected his law. And went chasing after idols. That correlates in the New Testament. How much greater will AJ's responsibility be because he grew up in my house, the house of a pastor, grew up in church, was was exposed to the gospel at an early age. If he rejects the gospel, how much greater is his punishment than a child who grows up in in Uganda who's never exposed to the gospel? That's the point that's being made here. Is that God will judge those who have the law. He'll judge those who only have the law written on their hearts. He's fair in his judgment. All have some form of the law. Either the written law that we have in our, in our Bible or the law that's written on our hearts. Paul shows evidence of the fact that everybody has some form of God's law. Look what he says in verse 13. Or verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show what the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. We know that everybody has a form of the law because People are periodically obedient to the law, even when they've never heard of Christ and never seen his law. We can go into remote primitive tribes in other countries and look at how their society is set up. And we can see them keeping laws that are consistent with what God gave Moses. We can see in these primitive tribes that it's not okay to kill innocent people. We can see that it's not okay to steal from each other. It's not okay to abuse children. Like primitive tribes will hold to some of these laws. Now, not all of them, and that's not consistent over all tribes, but tribes have laws. And a lot of them are very consistent with the laws that God gave to Moses. We also know that there's a law written on hearts because people feel guilty who've never seen Scripture. They feel guilty about their actions when they disobey some type of law that's on their heart. And they also feel satisfaction when they keep law that is written on their hearts. When they do nice things for other people, there's a sense of satisfaction, even if they've never read in Scripture that we're supposed to put others' needs above our own needs. They feel guilty when they steal, when they cheat on their wife, even though they've never seen that in God's law. Because there's periodic obedience, 
because there's guilt and satisfaction that comes from obeying and disobeying our conscience, it's evident of the fact that God has made himself known by writing his law in our hearts. I think it's also important to note that it's not unnatural to expect humans to obey God. It's the natural way to live. So when we even come and try to teach righteousness to somebody, we teach people that they have a responsibility to obey God's law, that's not unnatural. That law is written on their hearts. It's the right way to live. It's the way they were created to live. And as we speak truth to them from God's word, it should testify to their hearts that it's right because it's written on their hearts. It's not unnatural for people to be expected to submit to their creator. Next, his judgment is exhaustive. Verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. It's exhaustive in that it covers everything. Nothing gets by God. Nothing escapes his, his uh, attention. When he comes, everything will be brought to light. All the secrets. Things that, that man didn't even know that people had done against him will be brought to light. And will experience and will deserve God's wrath. His judgment is through Jesus, we learn from verse 16 as well. God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is important too because in talking about historical Jesus, when we talk to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, this sets Jesus apart from any other angel, from any other human being, from any other prophet, from any other good teacher. Jesus is the one who judges all of mankind. He claimed to have this right. In John 5, Jesus talks about returning on the clouds and bringing judgment on this earth. Any other man that claims that would be laughed at. That I'm going to one day stand and, and every human that's ever lived will be brought before me and I'm going to judge them. Jesus claimed it, which means he can't be a prophet, he can't be a teacher, he can't be an angel, he can't be a human being to have that type of right. It's his claim to deity, it's his claim to being God. Lastly, his judgment is eternally based. It's eternally based. It's not just based on external evidence, it's based on inward evidence. Verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is what, what is taught by Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. He exposes the fact that mankind had created a righteousness that was available by trying to keep the law externally. So the man who had never touched or slept with a woman that was not his wife was, was thought of as never committing adultery. And Jesus shows up and says, if you've ever looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. The, the person who had never actually gone out and killed somebody could look at the Ten Commandments and say, I've never committed murder. Jesus says, if you've ever been angry and hated somebody, you've committed murder. So Jesus, right along here with Paul, is showing that it's the inward condition of the heart that matters. So even if there was that person who said, Hey, I think I fall into that first group. I think I've really lived a good life that would justify me before God's presence. That all crumbles when we find out that it's not just an external standard. It's an internal standard as well. And nobody is able to keep that standard. Our sinful nature, it, uh, it betrays us. All of us have committed these sins on one level or another. Those are things that we learn about God's judgment here in Romans chapter 2. Now let's break it down looking at the guilt of the moral man and the guilt of the religious man. Just as a reminder, the guilt of the immoral man 
which we could also label the heathen. If it's easier for you to remember uh, God's wrath against these individuals with an H, the guilt of the immoral man is the heathen, the guilt of the moral man is the hypocrite, and the guilt of the religious man is the Hebrew. So heathen, hypocrite, and Hebrew. You could also break it down that way. The guilt of the immoral man, he has ignored the knowledge of God that's available to him. That's why he's guilty. He ignores the knowledge of God that's available to him. He's failed to give glory to his creator. And he approves of others that do wrong. He ignores the knowledge of God that's available to him. He's failed to give glory to his creator. He knows what he's doing is wrong and he encourages others to do wrong. That's what we saw in chapter 1, the heathen. He's guilty. He rejects the knowledge that's available to him about God. He's failed to give glory to his creator. He knows he's doing wrong. He encourages others to do wrong. Romans chapter 2, the guilt of the moral man or the hypocrite. This man assumes that God will accept him because others do. Others accept his righteousness. Surely God will accept his righteousness. Unfortunately, this was how the Pharisees were viewed. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all in cleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So outwardly, the Pharisees looked like the most righteous people ever. I mean, they were the type of people that you would have said, they're going to stand right in God's presence. But Jesus exposes them and says, you look good on the outside, people think you're righteous, but you're not. You're dead on the inside. That's what the hypocrite is. That's what the moral man is. First of all, in your notes there, he rightly sees the sin in others. But he fails to see his own sin. Don't miss this. Verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. This man is not content, condemned for judging other people. There's a responsibility that we have in Scripture to, to identify sin in the lives of others and work to correct it. We talk about that in our accountability groups. We're supposed to see sin in each other. We're supposed to recognize it. We're supposed to not be okay with it. We're supposed to pray against it. We're supposed to help you fight it. So this man's not condemned for judging other people's sin. He's not condemned for looking at Topi's life and saying, Topi does this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. He's condemned because he, he claims to be an expert in righteousness he claims to have the ability to see right and wrong, but he doesn't apply it to himself. That's where he's wrong. He's not wrong in judging others. He's wrong in not judging himself. 
He rightly sees the sin in others, but he fails to see his own sin. As experts in righteousness, we should see our own sin. It reveals that he has a correct understanding and an ability to discern that certain behavior is wrong. Paul's saying, you are definitely qualified as a judge. You are very good at seeing behavior that is wrong. It's why you're without excuse now. Because as an expert in righteousness, you should be applying that standard to yourself. That's where the moral man is condemned. He's very good at seeing sin in the lives of others. He just doesn't look inside to see the sin in his own life. It reveals that he has no excuse for not changing his own behavior. There's a great example in Scripture. When David um, lusts after Bathsheba, takes her, um, sleeps with her, has her husband killed, thinks he's gotten away with it. Nathan comes, gives him the parable, right, about the lamb that was killed by the the guy that had plenty of lambs. And, And David says, that man needs to be punished. That man has done wrong. Nathan's like, you're right. You're absolutely right. What a great uh, judge of righteousness you are, David. You're very good at seeing the behavior in others that's wrong. The problem is you've failed to see that behavior wrong in your own life. That's what the moral man is guilty of. He's not guilty of judging other people. He's guilty of not judging himself with the same judgment. Nathan doesn't tell David that he's wrong for seeing wrong behavior in that man. He says you're wrong for not seeing that that behavior is also true in your own life. It reveals that he has underestimated God's standard of righteousness and underestimated his own level of sin. It reveals that he's exaggerated the faults of others while minimizing his own faults. Even as believers, we're still good at this. We we maximize other people's sin and we minimize our own sin. It's a reflection that sometimes we we lower our standard of God's righteousness. And we lower our own understanding of our level of sin. Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 3. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgments you pronounce you will be judged. With the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? The responsibility is for us to use the same judgment on ourselves that we use on others. Number two, he rightly judges others guilty, but fails to see his own guilt. He rightly judges others guilty, but fails to see his own guilt. We have a tendency to be critical of everyone but ourselves. The moral man is critical of others, but not critical of himself. Oftentimes, we are most critical of others in areas that we are most lenient in towards ourselves. Maybe you see that to be true in your own life. Sometimes we are most critical of others and their sin, and it's in areas that we're most lenient in in our own life. We condemn others for what we excuse in ourselves. This is the person who we're guilty of this when we read Romans chapter one and we read the stuff about homosexuality and it's something that we've never struggled with. And we say, you better believe that person's wrong for engaging in homosexual activity. You better believe that that's wrong. That's against God's standard. That's against God's plan. 
That is dissatisfaction with God's creation and his plan for that person's life sexually. They've stepped outside of it. We look at that and we say, yeah, that person's wrong. And then we're guilty of looking at pornography. So we identify somebody else. Oh, the homosexual is wrong, wrong, wrong. He's sexually sinful. And we fail to apply that standard to ourselves and how we're failing sexually as well. It would even be true to, to stand back and say, yeah, the person that, that's uh, uh, involved in homosexual activity, wrong. The person that's looking at pornography, wrong. The person who's dissatisfied in their singleness saying those things. Because to be dissatisfied with God's plan for your life sexually, it doesn't matter if it's the homosexual, the porn addict, or the dissatisfied single. Every single one of those individuals is stepping outside of God's plan for their life. It's very easy to judge the one that's doing something externally. Far less easy to judge the one who's guilty of something inwardly. But the moral man's very good at recognizing the sin of others. Doesn't use that same judgment towards himself. Paul says, you are guilty just like that other person's guilty. You're without excuse. You show evidence that you know that it's wrong to be dissatisfied with God's plan for your life. Why do you not see that you yourself are dissatisfied with God's plan for your life? Paul says, you're guilty of the same sins. Look what he says in Romans chapter 2. Passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Moral man says, what are you talking about? I don't practice the same things. I don't, I don't practice homosexuality. I don't, I don't do that. How can I be guilty of the same things? Paul's showing the fact that they are guilty of the same things, maybe to a lesser degree. From a human standpoint, maybe it doesn't appear as serious, but they're still guilty of the same sin, just to a lesser degree. Or maybe he has in mind here that they are guilty of some of the sins described in Romans chapter 1, but not all of them. Or he may also have in mind that they're guilty of doing them inwardly, but not outwardly. But Paul's point is very clear. The moral man is just as guilty as the immoral man. He's guilty of the same sins. Maybe not from a human perspective, but from God's perspective. Maybe it's to a lesser degree. Maybe he doesn't do all those things in Romans chapter 1. Maybe he only does them inwardly. Maybe he never shows it outwardly. But he does it inwardly, and he's guilty of the same sins. Number three, he mistakes God's patience for approval. He presumes on the richness of his kindness, the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He assumes that because no judgment has come that he's okay before God. The word kindness here has in mind the benefits of God. The forbearance word here has in mind the judgment that God withholds. It means to hold back. So the moral man experiences God's kindness, doesn't experience God's judgment. The word patience there has to do with the duration of both. God is very patient in giving kindness to mankind, in withholding judgment to mankind. And he does it with a sole purpose of bringing about repentance. And we can either choose to repent or we can choose to assume that God's okay with us because he hasn't brought judgment. So let's kind of summarize the end of chapter 1 and the beginning here of chapter 2. Chapter 1, we've got a, uh, an immoral man 
who judges others' actions as okay, right? The immoral man looks at everybody else's actions and says, hey, they're okay with me. I'm doing the same things too. So he recognizes, hey, we're doing the same things, and I'm okay with you doing it. I'm okay with me doing it. He approves of others by doing the same thing. In chapter 2, the moral man, he judges others' actions as not okay, even though he's doing the same thing. He condemns others while doing the same thing. So you can almost argue that the, the immoral, that, that the moral man is worse than the immoral man. Right? The heathen, he engages in wickedness. He approves of others that engage in wickedness. Hey, we're both wicked together. You do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I want to do. The moral man says, it's not okay for you to live that way, even though he's living the exact same way. So the immoral man says, you're wicked, I'm wicked, we're both wicked. The moral man says, you're wicked, and I'm not wicked, even though he is. And they're both under God's judgment because they both know what they're doing is wrong. The immoral man, Romans chapter 1, he knows what he's doing deserves death. He approves of others that do it as well, though. The moral man says, that type of behavior deserves God's wrath. He's without excuse because he should recognize that he's doing the same type of behavior and it deserves God's wrath. Let's wrap it up by looking at the guilt of the religious man or the Hebrew. See what Paul has to say about him. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? There's three things that the religious man trusts in. Number one, he trusts in physical birth versus spiritual birth. He trusts in physical birth versus spiritual birth. He values his Jewish heritage, or in our case, his Christian heritage, his church upbringing, over genuine spiritual birth. He says if you call yourself a Jew, that, that term, that, that, that label Jew, was very special to the Israelite people. They, they considered it to mean that they had the favor of God upon them because they were God's covenant people. So I'm a Jew. Abraham is my father. That's what the Pharisees would tell Jesus. This is why I'm okay with God. This is why I have right standing with God because I was born into the right family. I was born into the right nationality. And Jesus has to expose that that doesn't count, that that doesn't work. Paul's exposing it to us. He's saying the Jewish person doesn't have a right to claim that he's okay before God just because he's a Jew. That correlates with us. Nobody has the right to say that they're okay before God because they were born in America, born into a church uh, family, born into a Christian family, that they grew up going to Sunday school. And this is a lot of the type of people that you go to work with, that you go to school with, that you live near. It's the, the, the moral man who's got a little bit of religion tied in there too. So maybe there's a third person here. There's the the religious guy who goes to church all the time, there's the, the moral man who doesn't go to church but tries to live a good life. And then that in-between guy, the guy that grew up in church, maybe doesn't go now, tries to live a moral life, thinks that he's okay before God because surely he must be a Christian. He was born into a Christian family. He, he grew up in church. He knows about God. He knows about Jesus. He might could even tell you the gospel. He's clinging to that, that heritage, that, that family heritage. 
The Jewish person was guilty of that. Secondly, he trusts in possessing the law versus doing the law. Paul says, you know his will, you approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law. You're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. Probably has the idea there that the Jewish people were prideful in that when a Gentile tried to convert to Judaism, they felt like we got to teach these stupid people about God because they weren't born in, into the Jewish family to begin with. There's a, there's a level of arrogance there. You have to teach the foolish. You have the right to teach the foolish because you have the law. You're in possession of it. You're a teacher of children. They trust in possessing the law versus doing the law. They value right doctrine and ethical standards, but they don't live up to it. We can be guilty of this sometimes. We, we, we value the fact that we know God's word and we understand deep doctrines. But when it doesn't translate into our life, how, how valuable really is that knowledge that we possess? It, it, it only makes us more accountable. It only gives us more reason to have no excuse. The Jewish people had led people into legalism. The Bible describes them in Matthew 23 as blind leading the blind. They weren't leading people out of darkness. They were leading them into more darkness, Jesus tells the Pharisees. Remember, he says, you travel around trying to make converts with your legalism, and, and you make them worse off than they were before. Because you've given them an element of knowledge, but it's wrong knowledge about me. And now they're worse off before because I have to go in and deprogram them from the bad gospel that you gave them. Paul says, you're not, you're not doing what you think you're doing. You're actually working against God's plan. He says, you're guilty of the things that you teach against. So they're hypocrites as well. It says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, idol, abhor idols, do you rob temples? We would all admit that, that stealing is wrong, right? We see it on the news. We say, well, that's wrong. It's not okay to steal. Are we guilty of the same thing, though? Paul says the Jewish people were. Now, you may not physically be going out and taking things from other people, but there's things that we do at times for dishonest gain. That could be as simple as not working as hard as you should at your job. Not giving your full-on effort. Taking breaks, taking time off when it's, when it's not appropriate at work. That's stealing from your employer. That's guilty of the same thing. You may not be physically taking something from him, but you're stealing. We've already talked about the adultery aspect. We could claim pridefully that we are not guilty of this, and yet when we really examine what's going on on the inside, most of us, if not all of us, have been guilty of this to some level. We have the law. We can't claim right standing before God just because we know his ethical standards better than other people. Third, he trusts in external ceremonies versus inward realities. He trusts in external ceremonies versus inward realities. The Jewish person values his circumcision. The nominal United States Christian values his baptism and his participation in the Lord's Supper. Right? Like that, that's, that's some people's claim to being okay before God. Well, I was baptized when I was a kid. Or I, I walked the aisle when I was a kid. I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. It doesn't matter which external ceremony you're talking about. He chooses circumcision. But we could take any external ceremony like that. 
None of those things make us right before God. None of us, none of those things give us what we need, which he says, you only get eternal life if you're patient in well-doing, seeking for glory, seeking for honor, seeking for immortality. Those are the ones that get eternal life. And that's none of us. That's none of us. He says the true Jew is not the circumcised Jew. It's the one who, who's obedient to the law. Verse 25, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If a man is uncircumcised, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He who's physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The implication here is that all humans have known something about God. All humans have known something about God and his will for their life. All humans have known something about God and his will for their life, but have suppressed it in order to live wickedly. All humans have known something about God and his will for their life, but they've suppressed it in order to live wickedly. The heathen has knowledge about God. He suppresses the knowledge to live wickedly. The moral person has knowledge about God, but they suppress it so they can live wickedly. Even though they judge other people's wickedness, they suppress it so they can live wickedly. The religious person has the most knowledge about God, and yet they too suppress it to live wickedly. Application for us from this passage. gospel these people believe that salvation is based on them being better than others why is this relevant for us because you go to work with people you go to school with people you live with people that fall into one of these three categories they're either the heathen they want nothing to do with god or they 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 worship a false god And I have these people in my neighborhood. I've got one that I've told you before that drives to North Atlanta to go to a Buddhist community to pray on Thursday nights. That's the heathen group. They worship false gods, like clear false gods, and they're living wickedly. You've got the moral person who's just trying to live a good life. This is is probably the guy living next to me right now. He's trying to live a good life. he, He doesn't go to church. He's there when I get home. 
He's probably not really religious, probably wouldn't claim to be religious, but he would claim to be better than most people in this world. He needs to know from me why he's guilty before God. The lady that drives to the Buddhist community needs to know why she's guilty before God. The guy that lives behind me that's, that's, uh, that's living with a woman, he's divorced twice, living with this woman, engaged to be married, but goes to church in this community, is maybe going to pursue membership in that church, would claim that he's okay before God because he's religious, but doesn't really seem to have a clear understanding of the gospel, doesn't seem to have a clear understanding of God's standards about sex. And we'll talk about this more in our C groups on on Wednesday. But God has some real clear definitions about when, um, when divorce becomes adultery. These people need to know from us why they're guilty before God. They need to know why they have to have the righteousness of Christ and why their righteousness will not stand up on the day of judgment. They won't be found to be the type of individual who seeks God's glory above their own glory. Even in their best efforts to do good, they'll be shown to be self-righteous, pursuing their own glory. So the hypocrite, the religious man, needs to be confronted with the gospel by us. But then as Christians, second part of the application, we must look for the good in others. We must look for the good in others, confront sin when we see it, while also confronting sin in our own lives. We must look for the good in others. We need to step off the judgment seat. God's the one that judges. God's the one that's bringing wrath. We can't assume that position. So we need to look for the good in others. We need to identify the, the positives in others. We need, to, we need to confront the sin when we see it, though. But in order to do that rightly, we've got to be confronting sin in our own life. Otherwise, we're guilty of the moral man's guilt here of judging others but not judging ourselves. So we need to look for the good in others. We need to confront the sin when we see it, but not just be the person that nitpicks and says, you're wrong, you're wrong, that person's wrong, that person's wrong, and use that as a means of making myself feel better. We look for the good in others. We confront the sin when we see it, but we confront sin in our own lives as well. That's Paul's message to us in Romans chapter 2. The good person is guilty before God because his good works will not measure up. The religious person who goes even further than the moral person in his accountability, he knows sometimes real depth about God. But if he's not clinging to the righteousness of Jesus, he too is guilty before God. So all this is moving us to Romans chapter 3, and I encourage you to study it this week. All of it's moving us to Romans chapter 3 where we find out and learn that it's Jesus' righteousness, his perfect life, that makes us right before God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gospel this morning. We are grateful and thankful that you have made a way of salvation available to us. And Father, I know that Romans 1, 2 and, and the first half of 3 speaks heavy of condemnation, that we are guilty before you. And God, I pray that uh, those of us that are Christians, we would use this as an opportunity to remind us of what we've been saved from. That we've been saved from a, a, a lifeless effort to try to uh, gain your approval. God, help us to be 
uh, mindful that at times we slip back into some of this mindset and that we need to confess it, repent from it. God, we don't want to be guilty of judging others and not judging ourselves. We don't want to be guilty of being prideful about our right doctrine, but not also broken about our wrong lifestyle that flows from that right doctrine. God, instead we want our doctrine to to lead us to right living before you. God, help us to be mindful that while we've been saved from this, we are surrounded by people who haven't. People that fall into these three categories. And God, I pray that you would allow us to use these truths about these three individual people to know better how to talk with those around us. God, give us insight into knowing whether we are uh, living next to the heathen, whether we're working with the religious man. God, allow the truth of your word to shape how we talk to these people. God, help us not to claim ignorance in not knowing how to have a conversation with somebody. God, allow the truths of Romans to shape how we talk with others. Father, we pray that people would be saved. Knowing that what you communicate to us in Romans 1, that we're not to be ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. God, I pray that we'd be faithful to communicate that message. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.